This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 284th episode, we have a bunch of news, including new evidence that Spinosaurus spent a lot of time in the water. There's been a lot of discussion around this already. Yeah, you've likely already seen some news about it. It's pretty crazy. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Astrodon. But before that, as always, we want to thank some of our patrons who help us keep the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Wouter, Moss Utah Raptor, Verasa Raptor, Goji, Neilovenator, Aussie David, Ellen, and Christine. Yeah, thank you so much to everybody who is part of our dinosaur community. We really appreciate all of you. And a lot of you have been watching movies with us, and we've been having a great time. We've gone through all of the available Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies at this point. So now we're moving on to Land Before Time and we'll be picking out other movies too. We're not going to go through all the Land Before Time movies, just the first one. Yeah. And then we haven't figured out what we're going to do next. We're going to have to figure that out soon (laughs) so we can announce it. If you're interested in joining our Patreon community, though, head over to patreon.com slash inodino. Yep. Then you can join our Discord and watch with us. Jumping into the news, our first article, obviously, is going to be the Spinosaurus paper, which is, it's a lot. But exciting. And yeah, very important. The paper was written by Nazar Ibrahim, and that's a name you're probably familiar with if you're a fan of Spinosaurus, because he was the lead author on the paper in 2014 that proposed the neotype and really brought Spinosaurus back into everybody's focus. Yeah, especially since the fossils that were previously found had been destroyed during World War II. Yes, so he's a very important Spinosaurus paleontologist. And there are also a ton of co-authors on this because there's a lot of work. It was published in Nature, which unfortunately means it's paywalled and very brief, but there was a ton of additional material in the supplemental material, which I think is free. I think that's 36 pages compared with the article being like four. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So before this paper, I want to kind of summarize where we were in Spinosaurus research because it has been changing quite a bit recently. So it's been generally accepted for quite a while that Spinosaurus likely ate a lot of fish. And the question has basically just been how much in the water was it when it did that? The reason that we think it ate a lot of fish is because it has a long, narrow snout and pointy fish spearing type teeth. It also has calcium isotopes in its teeth enamel that show it was probably eating fish. And we just learned that at the most recent SVP. 
Its head seems more adapted to catching rather than tearing. So it's long and narrow. It doesn't have a real strong bite force, but that's generally the sort of mouth that things that eat fish want because you don't really tear through fish. Generally, you kind of spear them and then you eat them whole. <laughs> General strategy that animals take. Spinosaurus also has relatively short legs that seem too short to chase down prey on land compared with something, say, like a T-Rex. So it's sort of a weird stance. At times, people propose that it might have been quadrupedal because it has arms that are almost as long as its legs. So it's, it's very strange in that way as well. And it seems to have denser bones than other dinosaurs. In the supplemental text of this paper, they said, quote, all bones have a reduced medullary cavity with a dense and compact cortex, a character that is seemingly exceptionally rare in non-avian theropods, end quote. But how much that density impacted its ability to get into the water and whether or not it still floated with this increased density, it's like it's denser than other theropods, but it wasn't as dense as like a hippo. So where does it fit exactly in the aquatic scale? We're still not really sure. On the other hand, it's not particularly streamlined, and its massive bony sail on its back in some models has been shown to make it kind of unstable while swimming, sort of like a keel of a boat, but upside down. Oh. <laughs> it's having the opposite effect, you know, it's just making you a little bit unstable, increasing that center of mass potentially. On top of that, it has really large clawed hands that are a very strange adaptation for something aquatic. You don't see things in the ocean with big claws and big hands and shoulders sticking out to the side. They tend to have reduced forelimbs, you know, fins, things that are helpful in the water, not big clawed arms. Right. That's why there's been a lot of debate. Yeah, exactly. So before this paper, it seemed to have a little bit more of the aquatic lifestyle adaptations than the land adaptations. But this paper swings it even farther into the aquatic space. And that's because they finally found its tail, which is really cool. Oh, yeah, it's a big tail. Yeah. So like I said before, the lead author is the same as the paper that came out in 2014. And that paper was based on a 2008 excavation in southeast Morocco. But they returned several times between 2015 and 2019 and they found, quote, new fragments of the cranium and mandibles, basically the head and jaws, several previously missing bones of the left and right pes, end quote, or also known as feet. And they also found a 80% complete tail by length. That's a really complete tail. It is. And even better is that the tail and those other bones are all probably part of the exact same dinosaur that was proposed as the neotype in 2014. So it, it's now like the neotype. We've got part of the skull. We've got a lot of the back. We've mm. got pieces of the hands and feet and legs and tail. That's good. That means any specimens that are found going forward, you have a lot to compare it to. Yeah, I think it really strengthens the case of making this one the neotype because we've got so many details of it. The case previously was basically the holotype is gone. <laughs> So we need a neotype. We can't just keep using these drawings. They weren't even pictures. They were just drawings of bones from the early 1900s. So this is obviously much better. And I definitely think making it the neotype is the right option. There have been some people that don't like it, though. I think it's because it's not from the exact same place as the holotype. And as we know, there can be a lot of variation. There can be different species, or maybe it, it could end up being a different genus, and then that can cause problems. But at this point, I think making it the neotype makes the most sense. 
Before I get into the tail, I'm just going to mention one other thing in the supplemental material that I think was really interesting. They found 10 lags in the fibula and estimate that five more were probably there before. So this individual, the neotype, was at least 15 years old when it died. They also found a similar number of lags in the ribs, but in the spine, they found that they had fewer lags. And they said that they sampled the spine near the top. And it might be that the spine was growing as it aged and there's less lags at the top because that had recently grown, basically. Hmm. So it might be evidence that Spinosaurus was growing this sail on its back as a display structure or something as it aged. But they only sampled at the top that someone's going to have to grit their teeth and decide to cut into this <laughs> super rare neotype some more. Right. And test some other levels of the spines and see how many lags there are at other points if we want to get to this answer. But on to the tail, because that's the main event of this paper. The first thing I noticed when I looked at the tail, and that I think a lot of people would notice, is just how thin the spines are on the tail versus the back. So the back spines, although they're thin laterally or side to side, sort of like a dorsal fin or something like that, they really are quite thin in that dimension. They're really broad going from the front to the back of the animal, which I'm sure everybody knows what the spines on Spinosaurus look like, kind of like a picket fence almost. They're so broad. But the spines on the tail are incredibly thin. They almost look like pins sticking out of the tail vertebrae. So they're in all directions, basically. They're very thin. Hmm. The other interesting thing about it is I assumed when we found that the tail vertebrae had these spines on them that it would sort of flow smoothly into the back sail, sort of like Aranosaurus, where it's got the tail sail thing and then the back sail part, and they sort of blend together. It's not really like that on Spinosaurus. It's got the big sail on its back, and then there's kind of a notch, and then it gets into the a separate, completely distinct, essentially, tail sail, which has a completely different morphology basically so it had a very specific purpose yeah or it needed to be thinner so that it could be more flexible there was some difference in the way that the part on the back worked versus the part on the tail or they just evolved separately and it's just coincidence that they look different the tail spines are still really long for something so thin so i think imagining like a pin is a pretty good analogy for it and to me they also look very fragile <laughs> But when they're excavating it, there's a little video and they show they're digging into the side of a cliff like you often are when you're excavating and you're trying to find more and more bones of an important find. So you go, okay, I guess we have to go to this huge rock that's really going to be difficult to dig into, but there might be something important there. And so obviously they spent four or five years digging into it. But they show where they're trying to get to the end of the spine that's on the tail, and they keep going farther and farther into the rock, <laughs> and the spine just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> and eventually they get to the end, and it's like two feet long. And they're saying, why? How, how is this so long? We, no one expected this. This is so strange. Because all of the previous reconstructions of the tail basically showed a standard theropod tail, you know, just sort of normal thickness all around. Think of a T-Rex in Jurassic Park. I remember, Pretty yeah. much how it goes. But as weird as the top of the tail is, the bottom of the tail is completely normal. It has pretty typical chevrons, they're called. It's sort of a V-shaped bone that sticks out of the bottom of the tail centra. And it's, it's just, it's like a normal tail. So as a result, the paleo art depicts it as 
a flexible but otherwise completely ordinary looking tail on the bottom. And then there's this sort of fin that grows out of the top and it gets progressively taller relative to the thick part of the tail the farther back you go. So as a result, the cross section is basically almost like a giant rectangle. It mm. stays almost as tall all the way back on the tail, but the thick part tapers just like you'd see on a normal dinosaur tail. So there's like the tapering thick part and then the thinner the thick part is, if that makes sense, the taller the spines have to be to compensate for it to give it like enough paddle cross section. So it looks kind of sail-like. Yes, and there's more sail the farther back you get. At the base of the tail, it's just as thick, but a lot of it has the muscle in it and everything, so it doesn't have much of a thin part to it. So if you were to draw a really simple Spinosaurus, you basically draw these sail shapes on the back and the tail. Yeah, and the tail one would be a much longer rectangle proportionally, about a third the height of the back sail. So it doesn't like line up. It's not like a huge paddle that's as tall as the back sail. Right. It's, it's like a third the height, roughly. The centra of the tail vertebrae are pretty interesting because they overlap quite a bit less than you see in basically any of the close relatives, which means that it was more flexible than other theropods. And this is especially true for its close relatives because Spinosaurus is a tetanurin, and that name in Latin literally translates to stiff tail. <laughs> Because they have these characteristic tails that sort of interlock, and sometimes they have additional ossified tendons, like in Velociraptor, that are presumed to have made their tails extra stiff for agility or some other purpose. But in Spinosaurus, it's lost all of those traits, and it, it looks like it's re-evolved a more flexible tail. And the obvious reason that it might want a flexible tail is because if you have a tail that's flexible, you can swish it back and forth in the water and propel yourself like a snake <laughs> or a crocodile through the water. I was thinking that sounds very crocodilian. Yes. Everything we learn about Spinosaurus seems to make it more and more like a weird crocodile. <laughs> yeah, because of the narrow head shape and being in the water. Now this tail. Yep. The tail is quite a bit like a crocodile, although I looked at a ton of pictures of crocodiles in preparation for this, and they have a really weird tail because it's flat all the way out to the sides, so it's kind of flat on the top too, and then they've got these two rows, almost like stegosaurus plates of osteoderms, going down either edge of the tail, so it's a more flat cross-section hmm. than it is on Spinosaurus, because Spinosaurus still presumably has a sort of round character, especially near the base of the tail. Whereas a crocodile, it's more flat on the sides, which would make it a little bit better of a paddle. Well, crocodiles are still around. So. And they had a lot more evolution time. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of crocodiles, they wanted to compare how Spinosaurus and its newly discovered tail compares to a Nile crocodile, a newt, a Coelophysis, and an Allosaurus. The last two are basically just controls to make sure that we're not just picking up on errors that all dinosaurs would have been good at swimming with. So what they did was they made 2D plastic models of all of those animals' tails, and they put them in a water tank and basically wagged the tails back and forth and saw how much force they created and how efficiently they pushed the water. So like how basically how good of a paddle they are. I think that the model is too limited to really get into the numbers. I think of the old adage that all models are wrong, but some are useful <laughs> because this one is, is just a 2D 
piece of plastic. It doesn't incorporate any difference in flexibility between the tails. It doesn't incorporate, like we were saying, the difference with the Spinosaurus tail is more rounded versus the crocodilian tail, which is a little more squared off. But in general, I think maybe the the order of which ones are the best might be useful. And ultimately what they found was that the Spinosaurus tail generated more propulsion than the Coelophysis and Allosaurus, significantly more, but less than a crocodile or newt. So it's sort of in the middle. It's more aquatic than things that no one has ever thought really were aquatic (laughs) and not as aquatic as things that are around today and really obviously aquatic or semi-aquatic. And just like the propulsion, the efficiency was right in the middle of the pack too. More efficient than Coelophysis and Allosaurus, but less efficient than a crocodile or a newt. Ibrahim said, At this point, I think it's the nail in the coffin of the idea that dinosaurs never invaded the aquatic world. End quote. And I take his point to mean long-tailed, non-avian dinosaurs, because obviously we have got penguins, and in the Mesozoic you got things like Hesperornis, but obviously they're not like a typical theropod body plan for a Mesozoic. They're not giant like Spinosaurus. Exactly, yeah. It also means that Spinosauridae could be the first aquatic group of dinosaurs full stop, including avialans. Uh, That's so weird to think about. Yes. (laughs) On the other hand, though, it doesn't mean that Spinosaurus was often or really ever fully submerged in deep water. Just like penguins. They can submerge themselves and go deep in the water, but they're often also on land. True, but I'm not even sure if Spinosaurus could get deep underwater, period, because we still don't know much about its buoyancy. Like I hinted at before, we know that its bones are denser than some of its close relatives, but the only paper I've seen that tried to tackle its buoyancy basically showed it floating like a balloon on the surface of the water. And I haven't seen a lot of things to counter that yet. I assume that someone could do a new study on it and show that, yes, it could swim, especially if it has a powerful tail, even if it is relatively buoyant, just like we are. We float on the surface of the water if we're not actively trying to be underwater. But if you kick, you can keep yourself underwater. So with Spinosaurus and its big tail, presumably it could keep itself underwater too. But I'd I'd like to see a real study on that before I accept all this paleo art of them like 30 feet underwater just swimming along as if they're a crocodile. But it is cool paleo art. It is really cool. And it seems probable at this point. I think it's more likely than them just sitting on the shoreline all the time. (laughs) Sunning themselves. That's what I think of with that phrase. (laughs) Yeah. Well, basking. That's what (laughs) crocodilians do. Yep. It's a good way to get your temperature up. I'm also really curious to see how this reconstruction and this new evidence about Spinosaurus is going to impact our depictions of other Spinosaurids. Because now they've all been depicted all along with a classical theropod tail. But does this mean that close relatives of Spinosaurus are now going to have a sail tail (laughs) as well? I don't know. We have, from what I can tell, we have one bone. We have one neural spine from a Suchomimus tail, and it looks more like a typical theropod tail vertebra. It's so hard to tell from just one bone. Yes. And Spinosaurus material is so hard to find. Like Irritator, we have like two pieces of the skull and that's it. Mm -hmm. So what could you possibly know about what its tail looks like from two pieces of the skull? It's on the completely opposite end of the animal. I don't know. It's going to take a long time before we sort out this family tree and figure out when Spinosaurids first went into the water, I think. 
but potentially the authors report that the first spinosaurs could date back to the early Jurassic, and if they adapted early to an aquatic lifestyle or a semi-aquatic lifestyle, that would be the first known aquatic dinosaurs, period, including birds. Another interesting sidetrack that a lot of people online have been talking about are comparisons to sailfish. So if you are familiar with sailfish, the profile of the Spinosaurus sail is immediately familiar because it looks in silhouette like almost identical. (laughs) It's got that same weird jagged sort of dip down in the middle and, you know, like a higher bump in the front and usually a higher bump in the back. I think it's a little bit more variable on sailfish. And I think that might be because on sailfish, it's a completely different type of structure. It's not a bony thing that's attached to the vertebrae. It's a fin that grows more or less out of the skin. So it's a lot less connected to the skeleton. Maybe that leads it to more variability. Or like other fins on fish, sometimes fish like to chomp on each other's fins. (laughs) That's true. We've seen it. Yes. Fish aren't very nice. (laughs) They will eat any part of other fish that they can get their mouth around. So that might affect sailfish more than it might affect a Spinosaurus. Although who's to say? Maybe things were chewing on Spinosaurus's sail too. But the biggest difference that I think needs to be pointed out between sailfish and Spinosaurus sails is that Spinosaurus definitely could not lower its sail, whereas sailfish almost always have their sails lower and they only raise them up as like a big fan, sort of like a peacock. It's usually down and they just open it up when they need to. But in a sailfish's case, it doesn't seem to be for attracting a mate. It seems to be for stability when they're hunting and then also potentially for corralling fish. Huh. So those same things may be useful for a Spinosaurus because if it's swimming through the water and is wagging its tail back and forth in order to generate, because its its feet probably aren't going to be all that useful, mm-hmm. the sail sort of isolates the head from the tail and it keeps their head from bouncing all over the place. That's what happens with sailfish. So the same would probably almost certainly be true of Spinosaurus. And who knows, maybe it had some sort of hunting strategy that included using that sail too. To corral fish. Yeah, just on a, everything's on a larger scale when you <laughs> go with Spinosaurus and the Mesozoic in general. We mentioned earlier how Spinosaurus is sometimes depicted as quadrupedal because it's got those long front arms. And on top of that, its center of mass appears to be farther forward than other large theropods. It's got kind of a proportionally long torso, which shifts some of its weight forward. Fortunately, this new bulkier tail that we found shifts back that center of mass a little bit towards the hips. And the models in this paper showed that it's still in front of the hips, but it's close enough that it could have been bipedal. Oh, that would be weird with that sail. It walking bipedally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of weird because its claws are really close to the ground, even if it is walking bipedally. So it's still, I wish someone had a good theory for what these claws are for. It's so strange. Was it like it spent half its time in the water eating fish and the other half of the time like ripping open termite mounds? (laughs) Which is leftover from its ancestors? Well, you'd think, I mean, paleontologists are always talking about how bone is expensive. So things tend to kind of disappear through evolution if they're not using it. But it's got these big hands and claws, but they're just not useful in the water. So we like alligators don't have those. It's such a strange adaptation. I think the best thing, though, that could potentially come out of this paper is Ibrahim thinks that 
all the excitement around Spinosaurus and the attention that it's bringing to Morocco and Moroccan paleontology might help them get a Moroccan National Museum of Natural History built. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, it would be it would be awesome for everybody who lives there. And it would also just be great for paleontology all over the world because museums are an excellent way to get local support for paleontology in the area and specifically sort of the research of paleontology rather yeah. than the commercial collection, which is mostly what happens in Morocco right now. Because museums can store the fossils and they can have labs for preparing and analyzing them. Yeah, and they can study them because if they get collected by private collectors, we don't learn anything about them. And a lot of times they don't collect enough information that even if you do end up with the fossil in the future, that you can learn too much from it. So yeah, it'd be great. They really need a museum. Plus, I'm certain if they build this museum, this spinosaur will end up on display because it is, quote, the most complete skeleton of a Cretaceous theropod known from mainland Africa, end quote. So there must be a good one in Madagascar that they had to say mainland Africa. <laughs> Maybe a Majungasaurus. But this spinosaur isn't even all that complete. So we need a museum there so we can fill it with more, hopefully even better finds. And models to show us what those claws might be for. Yeah. And if you're interested in printing your own Spinosaurus, if you have a 3D printer, the 3D model of the recreation is online and we have that in our show notes. It's pretty cool looking. Are you going to print one, Garrett? Maybe. I'm still printing mask stuff, <laughs> but eventually. In non-Spinosaurus news. Who even cares about that? <laughs> <laughs> there is less to say, but... There is non-Spinosaurus news. So in North Carolina, the bill to make Hypsobema the official state dinosaur has been put on hold until 2021. Some quick background on this. The state representative, John Hardister, drafted the bill as a response to a letter that he got from fourth grader Avery Mitchum. And if Hypsobema sounds familiar, it's because we covered it recently, episode 269, and we talked about how Hypsobema missouriensis is the state dinosaur of Missouri. And the first fossils of the type species, Hypsobema crossicata, were found in Sampson County, North Carolina in 1869 by state geologist Washington Carruthers Kerr, which is why North Carolina wants it as its dinosaur, too. Although apparently not all of them want it, if it's been put on hold. It's on hold because of COVID-19. Oh, I see. State dinosaurs probably are not essential things to worry about right now. Yeah, I can wait another year. <laughs> They've waited this long. And last, thanks to Spino Breaker, who shared this one with us via our Discord. So Chris Pratt recently announced a charity sweepstakes and auction where two people can win an appearance in Jurassic World Dominion and you would get eaten by a dinosaur. Oh. Right? Yeah. So there's a sweepstakes that costs $10 to enter, and then there's an auction going to the highest bidder. And it's part of the all-in challenge Maybe you've heard of it. A lot of people are raising money to feed people in America who don't have access to food. And a lot of celebrities have joined with their own challenges. So Chris Pratt said, quote, you are guaranteed to be recognizable, not cut out of the movie, absolutely in the movie forever, your legacy forever eaten by a dinosaur in the movie. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So they're giving away two spots, one by sweepstakes and one by auction? Yes. Oh, there's going to be a lot of people eaten by dinosaurs in this movie. I'm excited. At least two, yeah. Two no-name people. Got to get some of the main characters eaten, too. True. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. 
As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Astrodon, which was a request from Mr. NNJ via our Discord and Patreon, so thanks. It was a sauropod that lived in the early Cretaceous in what's now the eastern U.S., and it's estimated to be between 50 and 60 feet or 15 to 18 meters long. Astrodon had shorter, wider cervical vertebrae proportionately compared to Brachiosaurus and Sauroposeidon, so it may have had a short neck compared to other titanosauriforms. It had slender radii, which is part of the forearm. There's not much variability in the limbs between juveniles and adults, so the limbs would look similar as it aged. The fossils were found in the Arendelle Formation. In 1858, John Latchford found two dinosaur teeth in his open iron ore pit in Maryland in Prince George's County, and these were actually found by African-American slaves. Latchford sent the teeth to chemist Philip Thomas Tyson, who had Christopher Johnston, a dentist and professor at the Baltimore Dental College, study them. And Johnston cut one tooth in half and saw this star-shaped cross-section. In 1859, Johnston named Astrodon, but didn't give it a species name. So in 1865, Joseph Lady named the type species Astrodon Johnstoni. And because of this, because he gave it the full name, he's often the one cited as naming Astrodon. He's the official namer, mm-hmm. according to the ICZN, I guess. Yes. Charles Marsh named some fossils that were found near Muirkirk, Maryland, as Pleurosolus nanus and Pleurosolus altus in 1888. Not surprising. This is during the Bone Wars. And in 1903, John Bell Hatcher argued that Pleurosolus and Astrodon were synonymous because the teeth were the same and Astrodon was named first, so that's the name that stayed. 
Fossils found in Oklahoma in the Antlers Formation have been assigned to Astrodon, as well as teeth found in Portugal in the Lower Cretaceous, and teeth and vertebral centra found in England. These European fossils have been referred to Pleurosolus baldensis, which was named in 1890 by Lidecker, but Michael Demick in 2013 found this species, and actually all but the type species, so Astrodon johnstoni, to be nomina dubia. So that just leaves the one species. In 1921, Charles W. Gilmore said Pleurosolus was a junior synonym but thought that there were separate species, Nanus and Altus. Other Astrodon species over the years have included Astrodon valdensis, Astrodon pusillus, and in 1962, R.F. Kingham said that all Brachiosaurus species were a subgenus of Astrodon. <laughs> oh man, that would really shake things up if Brachiosaurus became a nomen dubium. Yeah. <laughs> So Kenneth Carpenter and Virginia Tidwell in 2005 wrote a reassessment of Astrodon, and they agreed with Hatcher that there was only one species of sauropod from the Arendelle Formation, Astrodon johnstoni. They said that it was probable that the two teeth that comprise the syntype were not found together. And syntypes are specimens that when you put them together, that's what a new species is based on. Yeah, rather than just one individual, it could be multiple individuals. It's kind of unclear. It's a weird thing to do. Usually you go with a holotype where you know it's one individual. Right. But this was in the 1800s and a lot of things were based on teeth. Yeah. And a lot of things weren't standardized. <laughs> so Carpenter and Tibble concluded there was only one species of Astrodon in the Arendelle Formation, Astrodon johnstoni. And most Astrodon fossils that have been found are from juveniles. So Carpenter and Tibble found that the two species Marsh had named, Nanus and Altus, were actually different growth stages of Astrodon johnstoni. Not everybody agrees with synonymizing Astrodon and Pleurosolus. Peter Rose in 2007 said that the teeth were hard to distinguish and that the type series for Pleurosolus, Nanus and Altus, were vertebrae and hind limb bones, which you couldn't compare well to the two teeth in the Astrodon syntype. And comparisons had to be with the referred specimens, which were isolated bones in the Arendelle Formation, and referred to Astrodon because of proximity and size of the bones. He also found that the type material for Pleurosolus may not be diagnostic. Michael Demick in 2013 said that he didn't find any diagnostic features of Astrodon or either Pleurosolus species and considered them all nomina dubia, and that the diagnostic features that Carpenter and Tidwell found were too similar to other sauropods. Demick said that, quote, a lack of associations and non-diagnostic type specimens means that species of Astrodon and Pleurosolus are nomina dubia, end quote. So that means only the type species is still valid. In 1991, a local family in Maryland found a six-foot-long Astrodon femur in Laurel. Many fossils have been found at that site over the years. In 2009, 41 acres were turned into Dinosaur Park, and seven and a half acres are open to the public. On the first and third Saturdays, when we're not physically distancing, people can help paleontologists find fossils, and those are then sent to the Smithsonian. The femur is now at the Maryland Science Center in Baltimore, the one that was found in 1991. Astrodon Johnstoni was named the state dinosaur of Maryland in 1998, and it's one of the characters in the novel Raptor Red by Bob Bakker. It's a Utah raptor prey, if you've read that book. It's an ambitious Utah raptor going after a 50-foot sauropod. Yeah, Red's a complex character. <laughs> or maybe it was going after a juvenile, I can't remember. Ooh, an excuse to reread the book. Yeah. 
You can see an astronaut model with a wound on its leg at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in the Terror of the South exhibit. That's that one. We've seen it, yeah. Sabrina gave it a hug because she felt bad for it. Yeah. (laughs) Me and many other kids. Except I did that as an adult. <laughs> anyway, you can also see an Astrodon model at the Maryland Science Center in Baltimore. Astrodon lived in a habitat with flat plains with streams. And other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place in modern-day Maryland included Silurosaurians, the Ankylosaurian Preconodon, Nodosaurid, Propanoplosaurus, and possibly a basal ceratopsian and ornithopod Tenontosaurus. There were also theropods, Dryptosaurus, Capitosaurus, Silurus, and Acrocanthosaurus. And other animals included sharks, lungfish, turtles, crocodilians, early mammals, pterosaurs, and plants around were cycads and conifers. And for our fun fact today, I'm going to talk a little bit about some similarities and differences between crocodiles and spinosaurs and what we might be able to tell from them, because obviously I had to go really deep into spinosaurs this week. So... First of all, there is an American crocodile, which is different than the alligator. I had no idea that there was a crocodile in the U.S. It's barely in the U.S., though. It's essentially only in the southern part of Florida, but its range also covers much of coastal Central America and parts of South America. So it's like an (laughs) all-American crocodile. Apparently, they usually get along with the alligator. They can be seen together pretty frequently, although alligators are usually in freshwater and crocodiles are usually in saltwater, at least the American crocodile. You might recognize that an American crocodile is not an alligator if you saw it because they're way bigger. They weigh up to a ton and can be 20 feet or 6.1 meters in length, which is approaching the size of a salty. And just like a salty, they prefer saltwater, which is completely different than the Nile crocodile, the other famous crocodile. And the Nile crocodile is almost entirely found in freshwater and found throughout most of Africa, not just near the Nile. It's all over the place. And I bring this up because there could be freshwater and saltwater variants of Spinosaurus, or at least animals within Spinosauridae. Our finds so far are mostly from freshwater. So the Spinosaurus that's in the Chemchem beds in Morocco appears to be in freshwater. There's also Suchomimus, which was found in a stream deposit in what is now Niger. And Now that spot in Niger is about as far as you can get in Africa from the ocean. It's pretty far inland. But of course, in the Cretaceous, sea level was higher, so maybe it could have been closer to a coast. But it was found with some freshwater bivalves, so we think that one is also probably freshwater. But who knows, maybe they could do both fresh and saltwater. Some animals do that. It's hard to say. It's also kind of hard to say if we'd be able to tell a difference from just the skeleton, because I think some of these modern crocodiles probably look pretty similar by skeleton, and you might not be able to tell that one of them is like always in freshwater and one of them is always in saltwater, but it obviously really seriously impacts their behavior and how much they can distribute around the world, because we do have spinosaurs from basically every continent, so It'd be interesting to know if they could just swim there (laughs) or if they had to get there when the continents were touching. I also want to quickly mention that in the Cretaceous, there were huge reptiles similar to modern crocodilians living alongside spinosaurids. So Sarcosuchus is a very famous example. It was roughly 10 meters or 33 feet long and really just looks like a massive crocodile. So it's not like Spinosaurus was just the crocodile of its time, because there already were crocodiles of the time. 
And Ibrahim et al. proposed that maybe this competition from the coexisting crocodilians might have driven Spinosaurus to its huge size. So it had to get super massive so that it could get some food, basically. <laughs> I also think Sarcosuchus was probably much better in the water than Spinosaurus. Sarcosuchus would probably outswim a Spinosaurus. So maybe Spinosaurus had to come up with a different niche strategy. Maybe that has something to do with the huge claws that we haven't figured out yet. I don't know. I really want to know what is going on with Spinosaurus. I think a lot of people's intrigue in Spinosaurus has been reignited from this find. It's like the Dinochirus of its day. Yeah, it did have similar hands, I think. They don't know what they're for. And if you found those hands, you definitely wouldn't expect, oh, it's got a huge sail on its back and a tail that looks like it's good at swimming in the water. <laughs> Hopefully you don't have to wait 50 years to find out. Yeah, that's true. But unfortunately for Spinosaurus, these weird adaptations didn't really help it too much in the end because all the Spinosaurids went extinct, maybe in the middle of the Cretaceous, but at the very least they went extinct at the end of the Mesozoic with all the other non-avian dinosaurs. Meanwhile, crocodilians went right through. They survived that extinction seemingly without a problem. And less than 10 million years ago, there was still a giant crocodilian named Gryposuchus in South America, which was basically the same size as Sarcosuchus, could reach 10 meters or 33 feet long, and looked terrifying, although it had a narrower snout than Sarcosuchus. Its snout was a little bit more like a Spinosaurus. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks again, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, watch dinosaur movies with us. Sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.